Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 7. Thank you, Brenda and choir. Mark chapter 7. One of the things that uh, becomes so apparent in the ministry of Jesus is that God's Son does not determine who gets close to Him or who is acceptable to God based on their righteousness, but by how aware one is of his or her own spiritual bankruptcy before God. Our Lord has just finished talking, if you remember, about to His disciples, actually about cleanliness, what it is that actually defiles a person before God. And as the fulfillment of all Israel's purity laws in the Old Covenant, the one who kept them perfectly and the one to whom they all pointed for consummation, Jesus declared all foods now clean, telling his disciples that there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person, these are the things that defile a person. In one sense, this is very good news, but in another, it's terrifying. For one, we can be relieved that we're not actually defiled before God by what we eat or drink or whether or not our hands are washed or our bodies are clean. That would mean that just by living a normal life and not even doing anything necessarily wrong, we would defile ourselves before God. But the fact that we aren't defiled by what comes into us doesn't mean we aren't defiled. It simply means that what defiles us is not what we might think it is. Our defilement goes much deeper than our skin, than what is on the outside. We're defiled by what comes out of us. When Jesus says that, what he's telling us is that we're defiled by nature. Our souls are unclean before we ever utter a word, before we take a bite of food, before we have a drink, before we leave our homes, we're unclean. Before we eat, before we drink, before we wash, before we're born. At our conception, by nature, it's in our DNA, just by being a human being, we are defiled. We're all unclean before God in our very humanity. So Jesus has solved one problem, the problem of how a person is defiled, but in so doing has raised a much more difficult one. If we are defiled in our hearts by nature, how in the world can we ever be made truly clean. The implication of such defilement is that we can't cure it. A dirty heart has no ability to wash itself, to make itself clean. We can't change our nature. The Bible is painfully clear about this. So what do we do? These are the questions raised by the text that we need in our minds in order to properly understand what we're about to read In this next section of Mark 7, we have to have all that there. Beloved, how do we get clean? We know the answer on paper, right? Most of us could probably pass it on a test. But being clean and knowing or feeling clean, if we can even say it that way, are two very different things. Jesus Christ has come not only to forgive us of our sins and wash us, but to welcome us as family. And give us a seat at his table forever. Let's pray. Father, if you do not anoint me with your Holy Spirit, there's literally no point in me speaking whatsoever. I have nothing to give these people. You have everything. You are everything. So, Father, I'm begging you to fill me with your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching your word, that, Lord, you would guard and oversee and overcome my mind, my flesh, that what comes out of me is what you breathed into this passage and intended your people to know through it, nothing more and certainly not anything less. God, I ask for my church, I ask for all those that are visiting here, that you would open every ear and enable us all to listen to hear by the power of your Spirit, Jesus Christ himself, calling to us from the borders of another world. God, be in these next moments. If you won't be, I don't want to be there. So, Lord, go before us. Prepare the way in our hearts for your Son. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Let me read verses 24 through 30 of Mark chapter 7. He writes, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's harsh. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So having established, remember where defilement comes from, the inside, the heart, not the outside. Jesus immediately goes to a region that the Jewish people would have all considered notoriously unclean, the very symbol of defilement. So, beloved, this is so important as you read the Gospels. Learn to see the actions and the words of Jesus as extremely intentional. And the way that the Gospel writers have compiled their narrative as extremely intentional. Intentional. This is literally the only time in the record we have of Jesus' public ministry that he left the ancient borders of Israel and went into a fully pagan land. So as we read this initially on the surface, difficult passage to understand, ask yourself, if Jesus had no desire to minister to Gentiles or wouldn't have ministered to Gentiles, why did he go here of all places? If you're a dispensationalist, which I am not, You probably love this text because to you it's proof that Jesus values Jews over Gentiles. That they are by nature more important than non-Jewish people. And that's why Jesus went mainly, as Matthew says in his account of this story, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But beloved, if we believe that, we just completely ignore the prior teaching of Jesus in this passage about where defilement comes from. Jews and Gentiles are defiled by the same things. Not by their ethnicity, but by their nature. Remember in verses 17 through 23, Jesus is teaching his disciples because they don't understand what he's been teaching them about defilement. In Matthew 15, he also places this scene, by the way, immediately following Jesus' same teaching on defilement. Meaning both of those writers saw these events as inseparably linked. They're meant to go together. This is why what Jesus has just taught is the ultimate reason why he goes to Gentile territory, presumably to withdraw from the pressing of the crowds, instead of going to a private place in Israel where he would have been more accessible. He hasn't come to insult them. He's come to save them and remember to teach his disciples who still don't understand, whose hearts in this section of Mark are getting increasingly harder More about true defilement since they are the men he will commission to go to all the nations, to places like Tyre and Sidon. They will carry that mission. Jesus will ascend before that mission is unleashed. So if they don't understand what defiles a person, where true defilement actually comes from, they will not be able to be faithful to the mission of the gospel that Jesus is going to commission them to. Jesus is doing the same thing to the Jewish understanding of Gentiles as he did to their understanding of purity laws in the previous section. He's helping them see it in light of his arrival, which brings the kingdom. Jesus left Galilee, so he headed about 35 miles northwest to the region of Tyre in Phoenicia. It's modern day Lebanon along the Mediterranean coast. In literature, Tyre is often paired with Sidon, which was about 22 miles to the north of Tyre. Both were powerful city-states and centers for trade and commerce in the time of Jesus. David and Solomon had both uh, had trade relations with the king of Tyre, but these two cities became the symbols of idolatry and paganism. If you remember, Ahab married that lovely, kind princess from Sidon, Jezebel. 
Such a great lady. She promoted Baal worship in Israel. The prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah, they reportedly pronounced judgment against Tyre for its, or repeatedly, sorry, pronounced judgment against Tyre for their arrogance and greed. That animosity, that view of them carried into the New Testament period. The scholar Josephus referred to Tyre as one of Israel's most bitter, one of their worst enemies. So if you traveled there, you were decidedly unclean. And again, this isn't the only Gentile region Jesus could have went to. And he didn't have to go to a Gentile region if he really wanted to be in private. He's pulled away before to be alone and has not gone in to pagan territory. Mark doesn't tell us, by the way, this, this is the place, by the way, this pagan, idolatrous, defiled land where in Mark Jesus will find a woman of faith. Mark doesn't tell us explicitly or exactly why Jesus went to this region, but we can imply from the rest of the text that he wanted to spend more time with his disciples in private, which would explain why he wants to keep his location quiet once he gets there. But Mark's purpose in including the scene here is to illustrate the faith of a Gentile woman and provide a foreshadowing of the mission to the Gentiles for his audience, showing them that that also was in the heart of Jesus. It was there. It was part of his Impulse, But it's very hard to keep a person like Jesus and his location and his whereabouts unknown. And so a woman in desperate need who obviously knew his reputation as a healer seeks him out. The text says she was a Syrophoenician woman. Which meant she, basically, she was a, uh, a Greek-speaking Gentile. Ethnically, she was Phoenician, but Phoenicia was under the administration of Syria, which is why she's referred to as Syrophoenician. It would distinguish her from the Libyo-Phoenicians of northern Africa, but her daughter has what the text calls an unclean spirit. That description is another reminder that we're still dealing in the context of defilement and cleanliness. In verse 26, we're assured that this, in fact, was a demon. Now, the crux of the text comes in Jesus' response to her begging and in her response to him. He tells her what seems on the surface to be uncharacteristic uncharacteristically cold for our Lord Jesus to say in verse 27, let the children be fed first for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children here clearly refer to Israel and the dogs clearly refer to the Gentiles in the old Testament. Israel is often referred to as God's children. And remember Jews did not view dogs as lovable household pets. Dogs were wild animals. They were scavengers. The last thing you wanted to be called was a dog. It would have been very offensive. Heretics and false teachers in Scripture are often called dogs. Now, there is a dynamic in what Jesus says that softens his response a little bit. For one thing, very interestingly, Jesus uses the diminutive form of the word dog rather than the more common one. And the woman obviously has picked up on this because... She's referring to the presence of domestic dogs, which wasn't an Israelite thing that gathered under the table where children had gathered to eat. So she brings up a more Gentile image of dogs, picking up on what Jesus had said. Since dogs were not pets or were rarely pets in Jewish culture. But notice this. Jesus isn't saying, if we can pull back from the, you know, that, that initial harshness of it, he's not saying that the dogs won't eat. Or that they can't eat. He's saying that the right thing to do is feed the children first. In Matthew 15, however, he records more of Jesus' words where he explicitly told her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Rather than being a contradiction, what we have are both authors, Matthew and Mark, seeing an order to God's salvation. As is in scripture, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, as Jesus himself will say it in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is also Paul's perspective in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It was how Paul would normally approach ministry. He'd go to the synagogue. When that was rejected, he would move on to the people in the town. Salvation is for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. That's God's order. Now, the question is, why did Jesus say this? Is he simply stating his ministry as he sees it? And so her response to him takes him off guard. He isn't expecting it. And he changed his mind about helping her. Or 
Is Jesus being intentionally provocative since he's teaching his disciples something and he's trying to draw out the faith of this woman for his disciples to see? He wants her to claim what is hers, so to speak. And that's the opportunity to participate in the salvation that has now become available through Jesus the Messiah for all who believe. That seems most likely because when is Jesus not in charge of a situation? When can Jesus be taken off guard? He's always in charge of the gospel. He's always in charge of its fruits. It's clear from the gospels that you can't catch him off guard. You find him surprised in the same sense that we would be or that you could get him to change his mind. So Jesus loses the debate, but it appears he's very happy to do so. This woman proves what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry in Mark and shows how there's an already not yet element to the kingdom he's bringing. The presence and power of the kingdom is already available to all who respond to Jesus in faith, apparently whether they're Jew or Gentile. So while Jesus keeps the order of progress in the spread of the gospel intact, he also shows that at all times, salvation comes by grace through faith for all who believe, not simply by membership in ethnic Israel. Romans 9, 6 through 8. Remember those extra baskets in Mark when Jesus fed the 5,000. Not only is he enough provision for the hungry in Israel to eat their fill, but for all the nations he's revealing to his disciples. Now listen to this woman's response again in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. How desperate is this woman for Jesus to heal her daughter? His response did not deter her in the least. First of all, this is, by the way, this is the only place in Mark's gospel where a person addresses Jesus as Lord. She gets him in terms of his identity. But even more so, instead of being offended by the truth that comes from Jesus, she becomes even more aware of her need for him once he has spoken the truth to her. She does not disagree with what he's saying. Do you notice that? She says, yes, Lord, that's correct. She understands what he's saying. Yes, Lord, that's right. She accepts basically being called a dog and thus God's priority of Israel in the order of salvation. But then she turns that to her advantage. I know. I know, Jesus, the God of Israel is a savior. Even the dogs get the crumbs that the children drop. And what has Israel been doing up to this point with what Jesus lays on the table? Wasting it. Rejecting it. Pushing it away. Treating it carelessly. And she, a Gentile woman, says, I'll take it. I'll take what you're giving. I need it. Give it to me. The dogs will be fed. The Gentiles, non-Jews, will receive a share in God's salvation. Just as the prophets had foretold. This isn't an addition to God's revelation. It's the fulfillment of it. Isaiah, Micah, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah. It's all through the Old Testament. And notice this. She also says that the dogs have to or don't have to wait, apparently, until the children are finished. They can eat now of the crumbs that fall from the table. So, yes, the order in God's revelation of his salvation is from Jews to Gentiles, but she proves that this inbreaking of God's final salvation into human history in Jesus was available now, at that moment, to all who humbly responded to him in faith. So we read in 29 and 30, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. What, is, what, 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 what was her statement? Yeah, you're right. You speak the truth. But I need you. And if there are crumbs under the table, the dogs can have those. So I'll take your crumbs if that's what you'll give. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In Matthew, Jesus, or, uh, in Matthew, Jesus refers explicitly to her great faith as the reasoning for granting her request. It's implied in Mark when Jesus 
heals her daughter. Once she returns home, she realizes that she's already been healed. But Mark wants to focus on what her spiritual insight revealed about God and the availability of the salvation Jesus has brought to all people. I believe he's saying to her here in verse 29, in essence, you've passed the test of faith. I'll grant your request. Jesus doesn't just say he will do this, but proclaims to her, it's already done. I've already done it, which is what she finds to be true when she gets home. That's the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus heals from a distance, which is very interesting. Not because her house was unclean and he couldn't go to her house. He's already defiled in Israelite terms. He's already in Tyre and Sidon with that dust all over his feet. He heals from a distance here because he wanted to show his authority as the savior of humanity. So this woman goes home and finds her daughter resting peacefully for this Greek-speaking Syrophoenician woman was also a child of Abraham. Beloved, we cannot ignore the context or forget the fact that Jesus is still teaching his disciples something about defilement and cleansing here. Mark uses this story to prove to his disciples and to the Jews by extension how defiled they really were on the inside. Even a Gentile woman that he calls a dog responds to him in faith because she realizes that she needs him so badly. True defilement or the strongest proof of human defilement in light of the words of Jesus would be what? To reject him. To say, I don't need you. I don't need salvation. I don't need what you're bringing. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need your righteousness. Nothing proves the defilement of human beings more than that. So you can have people that are morally very right and upstanding and reject Jesus are as defiled as the worst criminal you can think of in your mind as God sees it. And the offense we feel at that, that you mean to tell me, that by rejecting Jesus, I'm as dirty as, you know, the, the, who's a, the night stalker or the hillside strangler or some of these horrible stories I read about. Then, then you understand what the Israelites, by and large, were thinking. How dare you compare us in our defilement to the Gentiles? How dare you do such a thing? So if that's the strongest proof of human defilement is to reject Jesus, what would be the greatest example, greatest example of a heart that Jesus would move towards? A heart completely stripped down to nothing but faith and desperation that sees Jesus as the only possible means of meeting her need. All she has is faith that he can help her. That's literally all she has. And he does. And he does because that's all she has. Doesn't matter that she's a Gentile. Right? He's proving to them how defiled they are when he's come to love and serve the Jews and they've absolutely rejected him. While a Gentile, remember the ones that are supposedly defiled by their ethnicity, begs to be accepted and received by him. When the Jews who think Gentiles defile them, and are what makes them unclean, they reject him. So that's not why he's come to the Jew first. That's not why. Because they're more clean and Gentiles are more defiled. The law should have revealed to Israel that their defilement goes much deeper than simply not having access to the law like the Gentiles didn't. He's come first to the very ones to whom God himself has graciously given priority and showed his favor on, and they still refuse him. And it is through that rejection, beloved, that they will finally fulfill God's will for them to become a light to the nations, according to Acts 13, 46, and 47. This text is a lesson about true defilement, but not just about how defiled they are, but how much then they need Jesus to cleanse them. What would be the dirtiest thing a Jewish person could think of? Like his disciples, what would be the dirtiest thing they could think of? One of the pagan women up in Tyre and Sidon, the worst place they knew of. So Jesus says, I'll go right there and I'll show you faith. 
Jesus' prioritization of the Jews over the Gentiles is not a statement about how Gentiles are by nature more defiled and therefore less than the Jewish people. Jesus has ended that debate in his previous teaching in the text. The prioritization of Jews over Gentiles in Jesus' earthly ministry shows, for one thing, God's commitment to the full fulfillment of his covenant with Israel down to the very last. Israel has the priority in salvation history because the old covenant made with Israel reveals the need for Jesus to all mankind, beginning first with the people with which he had made a covenant since even they rejected him. You would think that their priority, that blessing and that benefit, all that they were given, the covenants, the promise, Jesus comes from them, there is no question they have that advantage. None. You would think that advantage would be advantageous to them and they would see God's mercy. They would understand their need and embrace Jesus with all they had when he came. Instead, they also rejected him. They crucified him. They looked at him and said, his blood be on us and on our children. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify this man. Their priority is not due to their ethnicity. God doesn't show partiality like this. But because they exemplify most of all here in this text, just how defiled all human beings really are. We are not above the Jews in any way. Just how defiled all human beings really are, which will pave the road for what? God's original promise to Abraham, through whom will come the blessing to all nations. That has always been the design and the intention. We must understand their priority in light of God's ultimate purpose, not in light of them. Or we'll go off the rails in our understanding of Scripture. In Galatians 3.17, the covenant made with Israel, 430 years after the covenant God made with Abraham, in no way nullifies the promise to Abraham, which was for all nations. Through his seed, which we find is this Jesus. Israel's priority serves the purpose of God's promise, beloved. That's why it's there. It was a means to prove the power and reality of his promise to Abraham. It's not because they're just intrinsically more valuable to God than the rest of mankind. In Deuteronomy, when he tells them why he loves them, do you know what he says? I loved you because I loved you. That's why. Uh, why do you love me? Because I love you. Right. If God's covenant with Israel was to be obeyed and followed and all its promises were to be poured out on those who kept it perfectly, we find that God will have to come in the person of his son and do that himself or it's never going to happen. Not even Moses saw the promised land. And there's nobody like Moses really in the Old Testament. Jesus is showing us through Israel's rejection of him that if receiving the promises made to Abraham are up to us to earn, we'll never do it. We'll never do it. Look, the prioritized people didn't receive it. The people that should have been most likely to, most able to, they not only said no thank you, they murdered the one God sent to fulfill it. We would have too. No question. Right. It's, it's, remember when the Passion of the Christ, the movie came out and there was all that big uproar about Mel Gibson was, was, you know, trying to blame the Jews for murdering Jesus. And, and when you watch the movie, the, 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 the Romans appear so brutal and awful. It's not like it's a contest. But I mean, it, they did. The Romans, the Gentiles, we were there. Gentiles were there. We would have done the same thing. Adam and Eve didn't have an ethnicity. That's what we would have done. This is what Jesus is driving at. We don't understand how defiled we are. We're too defiled. We can't clean ourselves. We can't change our natures. You you say, well, I, I don't agree with that, Tony. I'm a Christian. All right, stop sinning. Stop. Quit it. Don't ever sin again. Right? Oh, well, Tony, you can't can't be perfect. Well, you better be, or you aren't going to heaven. So what are we going to do? 
right? We're going to play word games like the Jews did with the law? Well, you know, you, can, you, you can't do that, but you, you can do this. And so, see, you know how much this incenses Jesus because the text won't let it die, right? The text is carrying on both in Mark's view and in Matthew's view with his teaching on defilement. We need a Savior. If, if what we have to be is perfect, and we're defiled by nature, which means even as a believer, yes, if you're a believer, you desire holiness. You live a life of repentance. No question. But at some point you realize, I, I, I can't be perfect. Like, I, I can't cross every I, dot every T, touch every base. I can't do that. Well, that's what God has required. So either somebody does that for us and graciously gives us that and says, here, you stand on this, or it's not going to happen. Israel's priority and their subsequent rejection is the ultimate proof to the world of this. Don't look down on the Jewish people. Look at them and say, if, if these people didn't get it, how am I going to get it? Right? How, how am I going to move close to God? This is what Jesus comes to reveal, the desperate need for a Savior. That's what he's doing throughout his ministry. First to Israel, that's his economy. And then through his disciples, who are Jewish men, to all nations, to the ends of the earth, Jesus would go as far as to say, Jews and Gentiles are both equally defiled before God. So to what will Jesus respond to what will God come close? What, what God is holy. We're defiled. What can bring us together? Faith. Like this Syrophoenician woman had. You, you can't look at faith and say that's all God requires. Like that's all that, beloved, you, you have to understand there's nothing you and I could give to merit salvation. Nothing. Nothing. Faith is the only spiritual thing that we can do and we do it. Not of our own will, but because God is gracious to us. We need faith like the Syrophoenician woman had. What was it? I am bankrupt. I know I'm unclean. I have no hope here. I know I don't deserve your grace. I understand that. But my need is too great not to ask. Please come and help me help my little girl. Beloved, that is the response to Jesus that we must make and that we can make and that if we make it, He will come to us and never leave us. See, it levels the playing field. You could say that exact same thing in prison where it's full of the worst criminals in the world. You can say it in a church on a Sunday morning. It applies in both places equally, in the same way, to the same extent, with as much desperation and as much genuine need as we can envision. This is the only prayer the defiled can utter to which God will respond with salvation through Jesus. I need you or I can't come. I have no hope. Please come to me. Please rescue me. So notice, beloved, in, in God's economy, the priority of Israel in the order of salvation was temporary. You see that? Temporary. Their priority has been fulfilled. It served its purpose. As in their reaction to Jesus, their rejection of Him, the promise of God's salvation to the Gentiles has broken out upon the world. And in so doing, again, according to Acts, they've become a light to the nations. God has turned to rescue now all His lost sheep, no matter how far out on the hills they are, from all nations, the Jew first, absolutely, then the Gentile. This is God's overriding purpose, beloved. Everything under that serves that. It's not an end in and of itself. Jesus himself in John 10, 16. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, not two. Not two. The ultimate design of God... The fulfillment of his purpose is one flock, one shepherd, dwelling with him forever. The idea of two separate peoples of God, to me, is demeaning to Jesus and what he accomplished. 
Their priority was not an end in and of itself. It was not really about them. It was to serve a greater purpose, the purpose of what God had promised to Abraham 430 whole years before he made his covenant with national Israel, which, by the way, only one Israelite ever kept. So all the promises of the covenant and blessings of it go to him, to Jesus. In him, all the promises of God are yes, they're amen. Second Corinthians 1 20, all the promises Yes and amen in him. That is why Paul will completely redefine our understanding of what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a Gentile in his letters. Jesus took him out into the wilderness for three years to teach him. That's what we have in his letters, the result of that. It's for the sake of the mission and the message we proclaim. It's to give Clarity to the gospel. That's why Paul talks the way that he does. Clarity to God's eternal purpose. What was once a mystery but has now been revealed as he says. The word Gentile now represents those of any ethnicity that reject Jesus since he is Abraham's seed, the true Israel, the true son of God, Jesus. We have texts like 1 Peter 2, 10 through 12. And the word Jew is a name for God's true people before it's a name for an ethnic group or nation that are not marked outwardly by our ethnicity or obedience, but are marked on the inside in the heart where once we were defiled and Jesus has made us clean. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. He's redefining terms. You see that. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit. Not by the letter. That's amazing. His praise is not from man but from God. Well, that's, that's just spiritual. What else is there? Again in Romans 9, 6 to 8, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, right? Paul is looking out at the world and his mission and he's saying, all these Israelites that were the people of the old covenant are rejecting Jesus and therefore are going to hell and losing their souls. And God made all these promises to Israel. What are we to make of this? Does that mean his word has failed? No, of course not. Why not? How not? Because God wasn't making his promises to a whole ethnic group, but to those within that group that had faith. They are his children. They are his actual offspring. That was Israel, Paul is telling us. It's always been Israel, always will be Israel. The people of faith are the sons of Abraham. For, he goes on to say, he makes it as clear as day, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. How so? What do you mean? And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What kind of statement is that? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So apparently, to be an Israelite, you had to be named an Israelite by promise. God's promise all the way back in Genesis 21, 12. This means, Paul says, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. That's a statement. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Which, again, was not a late addition or a change to God's promise after Jesus came because so many Jews were rejecting it. So God said, okay, I'll switch it up and I'll kind of let you be a part of this. This was prophesied and established before the nation of Israel even existed, beloved. Paul again in Philippians 3.3 where he joins himself to his ethnically Gentile brothers and sisters at the church in Philippi. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Why would you? Distinctions remain in the scripture between Jew and Gentile in the New Testament following the Gospels, but never in a way that contradicts or circumvents Jesus and Paul's words about what makes one a true child of God. 
Jesus' interaction with this woman is a microcosm of the issue of the priority in salvation history as Jews and Gentiles would have or may interpret it more so at that time. The woman embodies the Gentiles here. She maybe represents them. Yes, first, absolutely, he came to the Jews. But that in no way means he's not coming for them at all. Her faith is the response all should make to Jesus. For he's come for them too. And for the Jews, they are learning that they should not have read their priority in the order of God's salvation as a statement about their cleanliness or that that priority would automatically save them and make them right before God. Over against the Gentiles, they're finding that their inclusion does not mean the exclusion of non-Jews. For faith saves all, whether Jew or Gentile. Faith saves all. You don't get a special pass if you're an ethnic Israelite. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, or you're not Israel, the Bible says very clearly. That's what Jesus reveals about God's plan. It was a mystery. It was hidden. Now it's clear. Now it's revealed. Also, Tony has the church have redeemed sinners from all the nations replaced Israel as God's people? Absolutely not, beloved. No. The church is the fulfillment of God's promise. It's not the replacement of one promise with another. According to the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament through his apostles, again, Jew is a word for those who have been, are, and always will respond by grace through faith to Jesus Christ now from every nation. Israel has not been replaced. Israel has been revealed. This is Abraham's seed. Galatians 3, 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. With the full benefits of being an heir. Not like side B. Second thought. Dog under the table. You get the scraps of God's promise. No. That dishonors the person and work of Jesus. The only distinction that remains in the world now is between those who are in Christ by grace through faith and those who are not. Because as of this moment, they are rejecting him. We've not replaced Israel in God's economy. We've been placed into Christ, who is alone the faithful and obedient Israelite. So we get to partake in the promises made to Abraham and to Israel because of our union with Christ. It it doesn't pass straight to us and we're a replacement. No, 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 no. It all terminates in the sense of being fulfilled and realized and achieved in Christ. To be saved is to be baptized into Christ. Since I'm in Christ, I partake of what God gives to him. Joint heirs, beloved. Joint heirs. Ephesians 2, 11 to 3, 6. Please read that. By virtue of our union with Christ, because we're literally in Christ when we're saved, the one seed of Abraham. Now, here's the thing. Why does this matter to me, Tony? I didn't ask. Right? Why, why does this matter? Beloved, so that you may never think of yourself anymore as a mere dog or scrap, or afterthought in God's plan. But as a full citizen of the household of God who doesn't have to fight for scraps because you have a seat at his table. That's why. You will never be overlooked or set aside. We are not a parenthesis in God's plan for national Israel. The church is the very evidence that God has kept and is keeping his promise to Abraham and to his seed, who is Jesus Christ. We are no longer dogs. That's what I call this sermon. We're no longer, no longer dogs. We're full-blooded children of God. That's what the cleansing of Jesus does. You see, God isn't overlooking anything. He's not replacing anything. That's silly. Right? That's not correct. He's fulfilling everything. Right? We're full-blooded children of God. We ethnic Gentiles. This is what the cleansing of Jesus does. This is how clean he makes us. 
Beloved Jesus, what are we finding here about our Savior? He will not be defiled by Gentiles any more than he's defiled by tax collectors and prostitutes and drunks and lepers. Right? Because he belongs to God and God has set his face on him and Jesus has set his face on him. Jesus can't be defiled. He, and beloved, spiritually speaking, neither can you or I. We are sons of God. Why is it good news that Jesus can't be defiled by Gentiles or lepers or prostitutes or tax collectors or drunkards or gluttons? Because only one who is undefiled can cleanse the defiled. Which means there is nothing, there is nothing on the earth or in the cosmos that will disqualify Jesus from being our Savior. Nothing. Nothing defiles Jesus. Praise God. Because if anything defiles my only hope, I have no hope. Christians, we need to feel that as much as those who don't know Jesus fear coming to Him for the same reason. He'll never accept me. We agree with that about ourselves. You're right. Left up to me. Left up to my good works. Left up to my best intentions. I'll never get accepted. But we need to tell them that's not what gets you in. That's not what gets you accepted. You can't defile Jesus, but He can purify you. What takes hold of this cleansing? What takes hold of this Savior? What does God require of us then? Only that you believe in the one He has sent. He's everything. And, and us saying that, that, that doesn't, that's not even, that doesn't even make mathematical sense. That's coming out of defilement. If God says that's the way, why don't you just say, okay, all right. You know, like when somebody, again, I've used the buy your dinner example a lot, but like if somebody's going to buy your dinner at a super expensive place, like the $500 dinner, took uh, my, my daughter's uh, 15th birthday, her, my middle daughter was Tuesday, she was with her friends, so we took her out uh, last night, and of course she wanted to go to Fusion, which is like the most expensive restaurant in West Virginia, up at the Highlands, so we go there, I get the bill. It's, it's, there's a stamp on it, 18% gratuity already included, and I'm like, good, because I can't, I can't go beyond this. Right? When, when somebody pays an expensive dinner for you, you feel obligated to say, like, you, you want to, you say with your mouth, no, 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 don't, I'll, I'll get it, or, you don't mean that. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you're saying it so you don't look like a scrub, right? Oh, I'll, I'll get it, you have $4 in your pocket, you can buy the mint after, you know, or you can't even say I'll leave the tip because you, you can't. Like, this, that, that's the flesh. No, 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 I, I got it. You no, no, you don't. Man, no, we don't. I, I could be a preacher who's perfectly faithful, which I'm not right now, but I could become that, which I, I can't be, understand for the sake of the example. I could become that, and Jesus could let me live for a thousand years. Do you know how much I will have tipped the scales in my favor? Zero. That, look, even if you were sinless, that's not how God saves you. So why don't you just come to Him? Why don't you just come to Him? Right? Believer, you say, I, I've already come. Come again. Be reminded. I'm not saying you, you, you need to get saved again. You don't. I'm saying be reminded of where your cleansing comes from and what it does, what it achieves, what it accomplishes. Beloved, there's, there's no way to obey Jesus and glorify God with our works and serve His mission as He would have us until we genuinely have just rested in what Christ has done and said, I'm, I'm, you've got me and you've got to have me or I, I can't live. And so you go and love your neighbor and love your enemy, right? What is the one thing this woman believes? That only Jesus can rescue her daughter. Like the man who can't even look up to heaven much less list his righteous acts of obedience, whose only cry is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the one who Jesus says goes home justified by God instead of the other. That's why Jesus tells the thief on the cross that he'll be with him in paradise when he had nothing to show for his belief other than his confession of it. Because even the simplest faith in Jesus Christ cleanses sinners completely. One sliver of acknowledged desperation for Jesus to come and heal 
takes hold of all the blessings and benefits of God's heaven. And here's the thing. You want to know how desperate you are? You don't even have that sliver in you. So the only recourse we have is to beg. The the woman didn't have 1% ability to heal her daughter and needed 99% Jesus. She had zero. What is her calling out doing? Is it a work that creates salvation? No. It's the admission that if Jesus does not deliver her, there is no deliverance. So don't make it too difficult. Just come. Do I deserve to come? No. Can I come? No. Then beg. Beg Jesus. He saves. He has come not only to forgive us of our sins and wash us, but to welcome us as a family and give us a seat at his table forever. So why would you not embrace him? Why would you not? What would keep you away that you don't think you can live up to it? You can't. You never will. I, I, that's not why I'm up here. You don't get to be a preacher because you like lived up to it. You, you, you get to be more accountable. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, we are those who hopelessly have lost our way. That's, that's who we are collectively. That's the church. We're, we're those who are too defiled to cleanse ourselves, who just believe that Jesus will. Jesus is the one who truly cleanses us. Salvation does not depend on the level of our defilement, but on the power of Jesus. No matter who we are, what we've done, where we come from, what our name is, Jesus saves. So whether you've never known him and now you want to, or you do know him, but you don't know that you're clean, hear his word and believe it. Let him take hold of you. Let him take hold of you. Let him make you clean. It's what he does. From dogs under the table, fighting for scraps, to dear children, seated in a place of honor, given robes for the banquet, where we feast with him forever. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.